0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I have done about 425 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to watch previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the Past Interviews menu where you will see all the previous ones organized in various ways. Um, This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. Yeah, so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it in any amount, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. And if you don't like PayPal, there's a, a donate page where you can see other ways of, of, of supporting it. My guests today are Kitisaro and Tanisura. I'm going to have them give us their own biographical background sketches rather than me just reading the thing they sent me, because I think it will be more interesting if you hear them say it than uh, if I read it. So, which of you would like to go first?
1: Hello, I don't know if it's uh, here, it's uh, early afternoon, but it's uh, nice for us to have a chance to be at Buddha at the gas pump. Mm-hmm. Um, my name is Kitty Sorrow. I uh, grew up in Tennessee uh, with a Jewish father and a Southern Baptist mother. So that was unusual and uh, my life took me from a Southern military school where I was into wrestling up to Princeton in the Northeast, uh, to Oxford. And you were quite I, the wrestler,
0: um, you were running, re- winning these regional championships and stuff. Y-
1: yeah, that was a very central part of who I felt I was. With my body now, it's hard to... Yeah, you don't look like much like of a wrestler. <laughs> And that's that's true. But I, I really loved it, and and uh, we had a region called the Mid South. I was Mid South uh, champion, and and then we went to a national tournament uh, that I won, and that was, of course, Princeton was a, is a great university, but they also had a very good wrestling team. Mm-hmm. So I, I went up there, and um, got hurt very early on, and needed a uh, shoulder operation, and then when it looked like I would need another one, I uh, I realized I had to let wrestling go. Yeah. But I, I was going to go to medical school uh, after uh, Princeton, and I unexpectedly got a chance to go to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. And it's when I went to, to Oxford that I then, uh, in my studies of Aldous Huxley, then started learning a little bit about uh, Buddhism. And I, I, uh, I never made it back to medical school because in the middle of my thesis, it was a huge topic art, science, and mysticism Mm. in the works of Aldous Huxley. But I was very interested in how these different modes of being inform each other. And in the middle of it, I heard about a great forest master in Thailand called Ajahn Chah. And I uh, met someone who offered to take me and I got a leave of absence from my scholarship and the thesis I was writing. And I ended up uh, staying a Buddhist monk uh, for 15 years in that Thai uh, forest tradition. Uh, where later we got uh, invited to start monasteries in England, and that's been where I met uh, uh, Tannisra. After our monastic life, we then uh, fell in love uh, and 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 left uh, the the monastery uh, and uh, were married in '92, and then have spent uh, the last two, uh, 23 years. A lot of that time in South Africa, running a hermitage there. And, and more and more uh, being invited to teaching in this country.
0: Okay, so at the but, moment,
1: we're in Massachusetts uh, leading yeah. a, a treat. Mm.
0: And obviously, so there passion. are all kinds of other juicy details in there, like getting typhoid fever and being flat on your back for three years and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but maybe he'll, we'll reference back to some of that stuff as we go. And how about you, Tanisra?
2: Yeah, hi, everyone. My name's Tanisra. My background is from London, originally from London. I was grew up in an Anglo-Irish family. My father and his family, a large uh, immigrant family from Dublin. And then my mother's side from uh, the East End of London. And I was part of the working class. So I didn't really have a spectacular academic trajectory to, to go along. left school quite young um, and started work and um, tried to earn some money to go to college and working uh, as a domestic for, um, for a year or so in France and then um, managed to put a portfolio through and go to art school. And it was at that art school that I started to come across alternative culture and um, moved out of the family home and moved into a commune and started to explore meditation and alternative um, states of consciousness and alternative lifestyles. I also went to Krishnamurti a lot. He was in Brockwood Park at that time. We all went to go listen to him. It was in the 1970s. And um, I was very, very attracted to... I uh, read everything that he read, but I had a dilemma about his pathless path because I couldn't really uh, kind of make that leap. And around that time, I started meditating, doing a lot of these very strict Burmese-style retreats with the Going to Ubar School. And then around that time I met Ajahn Chah when he first came to England and then went to Thailand and considered ordaining. Eventually ordained back in England. Actually today is the anniversary, 38 years ago when I first took my first robes actually in Britain mm. and uh, became a nun and stayed as a nun, trained for 12 years in that forest school. Helped build a couple of monasteries, were co-founded. You know, we were part of a team, a group, building the first monasteries in the UK left, as Kiddusara said, when we fell in love together and decided, you know, also more, I think, deeper currents that were leading us out of the monastery. Mm -hmm. And then we were invited to South Africa. And as he said, we taught there, taught in Europe, and Israel, the last 20 odd years, 25 years or so. And then more recently, probably the last eight years, I've been teaching more in the US. I was part of the Spirit Rock Community Dharma Leader. Training went over two years looking at diversity and bringing the dharma out more into culture. I also trained as a therapeutic process when I realized I sort of really needed to backtrack and look at sort of deeper levels of wounding and, and understand. You know, teaching a lot, there's a lot of psychodynamic material that comes up, so I really want to have more skills around that. So now, you know now we're, uh, we're setting up our own non we've set up our own nonprofit profit in, uh, in Sebastopol in, in the west coast and we're about to launch our own training uh, next year which will be around the synthesis of Mahayana, Theravada, psycho-spiritual work but particularly looking at uh, application of that work for the planetary emergency that we're in, how to respond to that how, and, and at the heart of that around the shift of consciousness needed not just what we do, but where we do it from, from a sort of separative consciousness to a more seamless understanding of reality. That's great.
0: There's a line from a Paul Simon song where it says, "...my lack of education hasn't hurt me none." And uh, I would say that with regard to you, you're an excellent writer, I really enjoyed reading your books.
2: Thank you so much.
0: That was Kodachrome, by the way, that song. But one thing I like about your books is I love the, um, Sort of activist emphasis, the sort of otherworldliness and renunciation quality that often comes across in spiritual circles. Um, you've kind of moved beyond that. You know, you're very concerned about the world, and as you were just sort of alluding to, I you know, I, I really think that the ultimate solution to the critical problems we face is a spiritual one. This is, let's talk about that a bit today to maybe enliven that idea and collective consciousness even more.
2: Well, I I think we first began to really open out and to engage Dharma practice when we were in South Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, we landed in a country that was still very impacted, and still is impacted by colonialism and apartheid, and um, that felt like uh, it generated a lot of obviously a lot of racial division, but within, internally it also developed, generated a lot of division. Extreme discrepancy between wealth and uh, poverty, very profoundly under-resourced communities that we were in the midst of in uh, the rural KwaZulu-Natal. And at the heart of our time there, in the late 1990s, we we, we found ourselves in one of the centres of the pandemic of the AIDS crisis. So sitting on our Zafus and, you know, teaching loving-kindness and insight meditation really wasn't enough and people were literally knocking on our doors wanting help and so then we started to explore setting up uh, projects and fundraising and uh, training people to respond to the crisis when the government was in 10 years of denial. And I think also energized from that and coming back into the northern hemisphere and seeing that we had, you know, very quickly shifted into what was we've always been aware of, but suddenly realizing that we are in a very serious situation with the with the climate and the and the increase of the warming of the biosphere and the the implications of that. So that kind of led me into more, um, you know, on the streets activism, going to and more recently going to Standing Rock and being engaged in trainings and looking at how we can bring the Buddhist community on board more Mm. as a collective. You know, this is a very well resourced community, in many ways entitled community, um, and that it's been very focused on individual awakening. So how could we more collectively respond? So that's still happening. I think there's been a lot of shifts around that at speed in response, but perhaps not quite enough yet. But At the heart of it, um, what you're talking about, and I think it's very pertinent to People that will be watching, uh, but at the gas pump, is is you know even if we change the systems, clearly we need to change at systemic level, and that's happening already. But if we don't infuse those systems with a radical change of consciousness, then you know the you know as the Buddha said, the fundamental nature of greed, hatred, and delusion, whatever system it picks up, that will be, diffused through those structures. And the power dynamic, you know, we obviously have a problem with a very uh, exaggerated and isolated, inflated sense of self that is subsumed this this sense of entitlement and power over, of nature, of life, of, you know, there's a hierarchy of power, that's one of the primary systems that we're in, you know, people, humans over nature, over animals, masculine over the feminine, uh, you know, white over people of color, um, you know. So there's this kind of structure where we don't actually experience ourselves as part of a web of life. We're not really in the web of life anymore. So the realization that actually, when we go into a meditative process and into the the jitta or the heart, that heart is not divided. The heart of pure awareness uh, is you know is sensitive and and, and non dual in its nature. It's the the mano vinyana, the mind that goes out and discriminates and discerns and differentiates, which is necessary and we use that mind, that has generated this vastly differentiated world and these structures that um, have divorced us, really, from a deep sense of belonging. And I think that lack of deep sense of belonging, deep sense of the sacred, inherent within all of life is one of our core diseases and is leading to this extreme destruction that we're seeing.
0: Yeah. So, to perhaps summarize what you just said, whatever we see in the world, whatever, uh, that is in any way influenced by human activity, is a reflection of the ambient collective consciousness that is created by the contribution of all seven billion of us. And if, there's, you know, if we're seeing environmental devastation and economic inequity and all, this, all the other things you itemized, then those are just like symptoms of something in the collective consciousness that we all are, are creating, just as a, a boil on the skin might be a symptom of a, you know, some impurity in the blood or something. and you know, So that people might despair in hearing that because they might think, well, how are we going to get 7 billion people to change their consciousness? What difference can I make? Perhaps you could respond to that question.
1: Well, even when when one person's consciousness changes, uh, it can it can have a profound impact. We have spent the last much of the last 23, 24 years in South Africa, mm-hmm. and we were uh, when we had left the monastery, uh, we had no money, we were homeless, and being invited because of our uh, meditative past. I'd been a monk fifteen years, and Tunisir had been a nun uh for about the same length of time we would be invited to different places to teach uh, the dharma and then an invitation came uh to to come to south africa and we were supposed to arrive right after their elections uh back in uh 94 and our friends in the uk at the time said oh don't go there it's going to be a bloodbath
3: mm.
1: but when we when we meditated on it contemplated it, we thought we were being invited for a good purpose to share uh, and encourage to share the Dhamma. Encourage people to practice uh, training the heart. We thought, uh, why not go? And so we arrived right after the elections, and the country was in a euphoria at the time because the elections had gone um, uh, surprisingly peacefully. But being in that land and having the impact of one person, like the leadership of Mandela, who, for, you know, famously said, "When you harbor resentment." it's a little bit like drinking poison and hoping it will kill your enemies you know he spent 27 years in a in a prison cell and someone who who just uh, realized the need for forgiving and for including and it was uh, so we, we shouldn't sometimes when we so much try on the outer side to change things we're coming from from force from desire and not always in touch with the and appreciate the power of uh, of our being and our presence and so that's one thing I really appreciate about my monastic training when I was a wrestler, I just relied on willpower and through, I could uh, do more push-ups. I could do 500 push-ups a day and climb rope and walk on my hands for 100 yards and work harder than anybody. And I, I was insane uh, with studies. I, you know, To me, getting to success was just through hard work. And uh, it was in my monastic life when I ran into typhoid fever and just got flattened. Mm. You know, I found that there are some things you can't just shift with, with willpower. And, and always, I realized before, I was always moving ahead to, to success. as some place to, to, to get to. And that's this acquiring mind that that generates a sense of the sacred is not here. There's a lack here. It's we're gonna get to the good stuff to success by, by pushing, driving, and getting rid of what we shouldn't have. And, and it was in this profound surrender to a situation that I wouldn't have chosen, and with the help of the Buddhist teachings to discover that actually all of this stuff that we take to be our life is arising and ceasing right inside this, this wide background of awareness, of, of consciousness, and that, uh, rather than us going through life, in a sense, life is is manifesting uh, through us. And changes at the core there can have uh, profound impacts around. And so, uh, you know, to me, that heartens me. You know, I still want to be sensitive to what's going on in the world and try to encourage the good. But I, through seeing examples, like, for example, we have a friend who was one of Mr. Mandela's bodyguards. And um, so as you probably remember there was a lot of faction fighting and tribal warfare that was being even stirred up by the apartheid government because they wanted to be able to say, see, these blacks, they, they can't rule, they just kill each other. Mm-hmm. And, and so when Mandela was uh, the president from 94 to 99, In the province where we were staying, a lot of violence broke out in KZN, KwaZulu, Natal, in the town of Richmond. There was one faction killing people in Mr. Mandela's party, the African National Congress. And so Mandela, being who he is, he said, I want to go there. I want to speak to the people there. So, and so our friend, his bodyguard, one of his bodyguards, went with him and they drove to Richmond and the place, the streets were full. of of people, and uh, Mandela wanted to get out of the bulletproof presidential car and walk among the people, and the bodyguard and the other vouchers just said, Mr. President, you can't do that. They'll kill you. There had already been quite a few um, uh, ANC uh, members murdered, and Mr. Mandela, our friend recounts, Mr. Mandela said, if I can't walk down the streets of my own city, as the president of this country, he said, you might as well shoot me now.
3: <laughs>
1: and he got out of the car, and the, and the, the, the people were so touched and stunned, it, it sent this, this wave of, of being moved, that he was, he was willing, to make himself uh, vulnerable, yeah. and and trusting something deeper within the human nature, and so so there's one person, and we say, oh well, how many Mandelas are there? Well, we shouldn't we shouldn't devalue ourselves, you know, that what we do when we learn to trust and know this place where everything comes together, where we sense our kinship with each other and with Mother Earth, that that more mysterious things can happen, and so I think, I think that is, it helps me return from a place of despair to something I can do.
0: Yeah. I would suggest that perhaps Mandela and King and Gandhi and people like that, um, it's not like one person had this incredible leverage and just changed things single-handedly, it's that they themselves were representative of uh, some kind of groundswell or shift mm-hmm. that was taking place in collective consciousness. And they, they served in the capacity or the role of, you know, leader of this, representative of that, and, and being able to make decisions and be a, something that people could recognise, but that they were actually, um, well I, I think I just said it, that they were an expression of, of some th- deep shift that was taking place in the collective.
2: They were, and, but also they, they had this... Uh... They had a training that enabled them to f- to channel that. Think of Mandela, that, that 20, yeah. 20, fill that role, at that 27 years mm-hmm. um, of transmuting what must have been an enormous amount of frustration and anger, yeah, and hatred, and really, you know, they turning the, the prison into a university, knowing that eventually they would actually win, mm-hmm. and preparing for that. But absolutely, he's he's not standing alone. But also, I think. Um, the question of it doesn't need seven billion of us right. to make the shifts. I think you know that theory of the tipping point. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what the percentage is, but it's not that much.
0: Well, there's different percentages and in different systems. Like in the heart, mm-hmm. one one percent of the cells are called pacemaker cells, and they regulate the beating of the whole heart. And in in some non-living systems, such as a laser, or, or a, a a magnet, or particularly a laser. One, the square root of 1% of the photons have to align coherently and they'll, all the other photons will entrain with them. So, it could be that rather small percentages of the population need to undergo a, a profound shift in order for the whole population, because they're, you know, they're functioning at a more fundamental level, and, and we know that if you can function at a more fundamental level, it influences the more superficial levels more effectively than if you're functioning on the surface.
2: Yeah. And, and you can see that with what's happening now in say in the US and across the world where people are awakening up very fast to the, mm. the, the collective um, planetary emergency that we're in, that there's also an enormous amount of awakening happening. Yeah, you know, It's the, like the intensity of the situation, the crisis, a deep crisis, which is really a crisis of consciousness, of seeing ourselves as separate really from the web of life. Mm. I think that's the, fundamentally that dualistic conscious or separative consciousness where we don't actually experience ourselves in an embodied way as as part of the, within the deep sense of belonging, web of life, there is that sense of, uh, you know, alienation and therefore all of the pathologies that have merged out of it. We're seeing that pathology at an extreme degree now in the political leaders. They're lost, they're, they're, they're degraded, they're soulless, they're purely after power and the oligarchs, the tiny percent, you know, trying to control and rule it all, and then underneath you see this, this ferment happening, yeah. you know, awakening and speeding up at, at great, great, you know, at great speed.
0: Yeah, we're also seeing you know, the opioid epidemic and all these mass shootings and all that stuff which is, seems to me symptomatic of something. It's almost symptomatic of the sort of craziness and despair and hopelessness that people feel. Yeah, um, sure. Whereas if you can have the, the perspective that we're expressing here, that there is actually a, a mass awakening taking place, then you're not so depressed by the six o'clock news, you know, you, you, you feel like, whoa, something actually good is happening, it's not making the news because it's too subtle, but we re- there's really mm. hope for the world.
2: There is, but we shouldn't be too Pollyannish about it. And the enormous challenge oh, yeah. of of what we're facing, and also the degradation to so many communities that are and peoples that are really so pro- profoundly marginalised and unsupported that these uh, extreme events are happening.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you would agree that it's not sufficient just to sit on the cushion, but it's also not sufficient just to be the activist who doesn't sit on the cushion. I mean, the the ideal blend is both. If there can be sort of Awakening of one's own consciousness and an expression of that in activity of some sort, you're going to be much more effective.
1: You said it, and uh, (laughs) you know that that's true. And we we continually find the balance. I mean, so many people in the who care, the carers and the activists, uh, get burned out and overwhelmed by the monumental tasks at hand, and that's where the meditative uh, skills of being as able also to reflect on this is how it is. There's the sense of overwhelm, there's the nervous system, misfiring, there's exhaustion. I'm so grateful to the Buddha's teaching who reminded us that the sacred is always right at the heart of uh, however it is here and now. Mm -hmm. And that it's not just when we get to the place where we think it should be. So in those moments of overwhelm, to have cultivated and still be cultivating that capacity to say this is how it is now, to receive the exhaustion and the uh, sensations in the body of the nervous system uh, freaking out a bit and to hear the uh, thoughts scrambling and just to to know them as they are, uh, uh, feelings and phenomenon coming and going again within a spacious listening, mm. within awareness, that's not moving and to, to know how to engage but also know how to retreat, this skillful shuttling of how to uh, resource ourselves and when we do that we're, I, I can't find it in the scriptures but it's like I remember a story once that if a cow was stuck in the mud. You could jump in the mud to keep a cow company but uh, you might you know just get hurt and you both go down but you you need a solid purchase and then to make contact from a solid purchase to be able to pull uh, this this uh, suffering creature out so in moments even when we're overwhelmed if we come to the actuality of the sensations the feelings Whatever's happening and being overwhelmed—that's the solid purpose, uh, purchase, our our refuge, our abiding in—is on the truth of the matter, and and then we can recharge somewhat to then allow to respond from what is to how we maybe can can do something.
0: Yeah, well, in other words, if you don't know how to swim, don't try to get a job as a lifeguard. Um. <laughs> In the Gita, Lord Krishna says, established in Yoga, perform action. So first, kind of get yourself grounded in being, or whatever you want to call it, and then on that foundation, action can be more effective and more appropriate, more right.
2: I think it's more responsive because you're, you're learning to align with the innate intelligence of awareness, of the buttho, you know, the, the knowing, this pure knowing awareness, it's dynamic, it's intelligent, Mm -hmm. and it's connected with the depth intelligence of the Dharma or reality, then you start to listen to that, then there's a certain guidance or responsiveness that's not just coming from the cognitive strategizing mind, you can use that in service of. So, you know, without that, then I think our, our responses are very colored by our agendas which are effective, but I I don't think they really have the profound power of that transformative nature of what we're talking about and what's really uh, needed to transform the consciousness in terms of how we respond, where we come from, what's needed.
0: No, that's great. I guess another way of putting it is that there's a profound, vast, unbounded intelligence orchestrating the universe, and if if we're estranged from that, isolated, Cut off from that, then we're cut kind of, we're left to our own wits, you know, to sort of manage in life. But if we can become attuned to that, then that intelligence guides and, and governs our life.
2: I was very uh, struck when I was at Standing Rock, how the whole indigenous community that oh, was represented there, huh? there hmm. yeah, how they actually moved from that place and how it was so so ancient, from so ancestral that their activism and their engagement in taking on what was really quite extreme, uh, aggressive forces, that it was very clear that they were completely trusting the power of ceremony and prayer and the spiritual and the sacred. And their trainings were around that and the decolonization of the mind that's kind of constantly going into the sense of me fighting against them, the hierarchy of power. You know, to really explore that, how that suffuses everything that we, how we think, what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was very radical to be there. I felt a great honour to be there as someone learning from, an ancient peoples that hold this piece and held it so profoundly, in the way they moved and the way that they responded. Um, yeah. But definitely, that sense of that deep intelligence being informed by that it was—it had a real sense of sacredness. It suffused. Yeah, now some people might
0: argue that, well, you know, well, that was nice but the pipeline got built. Yeah, what would you say to that? Yeah, objection? but it's
2: it's not over. They are right. still court cases going on, but also, you know, they've been doing this for 500 years. They've, you know, the First Nation peoples and Indigenous peoples, they've learned a lot in terms of standing up to extreme power. It's not just you know a little bit of power that we that we could overturn this is a the power that has committed genocide upon them and across the lands and so you know they've know what it is to be profoundly brutalized and disenfranchised you know they've also been extremely marginalized but they've learned something that's really profound and and that was for me what was really important is to honor that learning and and for them to recognize yes this isn't the end of the this is a battle that wasn't seemingly at first has been I don't know if it's completely lost because, as I said, there's court cases going on, but it's not the end of the the war, the longer struggle. Yeah. I mean, there were 2,000 vets. Yeah. No, it inspired, I think it inspired activists to come from this very radically different place. So that was what was so profound for me.
0: And the Occupy movement was sort of along those same lines. But just on this point, it's a little tangential, but I saw a documentary recently about how quickly solar and other alternative energies are moving along, and the guy was saying at the rate they're going, oil is not going to be viable much longer below a certain price or above a certain price, and that pipeline and many other types of oil, you know, Canadian tar sands and, and the Bakken oil is just going to become, it's going to get priced out of the market, um, because yeah, the money goes, the money. even in Dubai they're, they're going oh, okay. to solar and they've got all the oil in the world that they're sitting on.
2: Yeah, I think the economics of it was, is going to be the main game-changer actually, as it often is, yeah. and, and, and we're, we are in this crunch of an energy revolution, which is sort of in a way reflective of the consciousness revolution, it's yes. very exciting.
0: It is. Yeah, and I just want to come back to the point that if we keep talking about this kind of thing, standing rock and energy re- re- resolution, revolutions and things like that, it's because the, that, those and the consciousness of the earth and, and the whole thing of awakening and enlightenment and, and all that many people watching this show are interested in are inextricably intertwined. It's like two legs of a stool. You pull one and the rest are going to come along. If there's really an awakening going on, then it's going to change these economic and social structures uh, because those, again, are an expression of the collective consciousness.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a Another way an ordinary person can can contribute this machine that's chewing up the resources of the earth and and uh, crushing over uh, the creatures and the, and the peoples that stand in the way is built around this insatiable consuming of everything. And so when when people are practicing as we do in the contemplative world. Learning to tune into the sheer joy of standing and relaxing, of breathing and aligning ourselves with this uh, cosmic rhythm and, and tuning up the awareness to notice the nature of form and, and how that takes us back home to this deep place of belonging. Because at our deepest place, we merge with that awareness that, that holds everything. And when we live in that sort of way, or even turn the volume up on learning to, to take a holiday to return in moments to a, a place of wholeness by okay. getting uh, breath and body and awareness. We're living in a way that is um, not exploiting anybody. up mm. Unnecessarily uh, resources in the earth when we try to move our uh, diets to more plant-based diets that, that, that's another way we can contribute. Mm-hmm. To uh, to uh, turning the Dow down on that rampant uh, consumerism that keeps you know f- feeding this uh, this uh, t- t- chewing up of the resources uh, of the earth.
3: Right.
1: And uh, so I-, I just don't don't want to forget that. I want to in- include that. That moments when we do that, in moments also when we an important part of our work is when we come together collectively and. Uh, have ceremonies uh, together and grow beyond our individual personalities and invoke this power of uh, unity and harmony. There's an energy that really is uh, blessing and transformative that I think helped us, for example, survive three years in South Africa at a time that, that it was very turbulent and quite challenging. But I would like uh, to encourage us to Realize we can balance the the activist uh, work or honor the activist work, but also honor what we do even in personal ways. When we uh, learn how to, in Buddhism, it's called cultivate samadhi. It's it's states of unity mm-hmm. that aren't in a wholesome, pleasant abiding. That's not dependent on chewing up any external resources. That's mm-hmm. that's born of pausing, listening welcoming, and that sort of skillful learning how to take a holiday, learning how to find uh, joy in in nature, joy in walking and sitting and awareness is uh, on a wider level when more p- people do that has a big impact on a on a culture that maybe has this idea that what really makes us healthy is consuming more and more <laughs> and more, and I, I'm just saying that that's another powerful way to address the crisis yeah. as we learn to need less and as we, uh, you know, I was trying to make that That's forward.
0: good. Around Christmas time every year, the news is all about the sales records and the people mobbing the stores and, you know, stampeding and fighting over some the latest toy and stuff like that and it just seems so crazy. I know that in our case, like, our car is like, I don't know, 16, 17 years old and every now and then we think, yeah, should we get a newer car? but all we hardly ever do is drive around town and the car does that just fine so we figure well let's hang on to it maybe it'll last until really good electric cars come out that we can afford yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah which they are beginning to yeah and looking at christmas for example you know it's it's like all of us in this awakening world you know, we could encourage a, a non-consumption christmas if, you know if people as leaders and teachers to look at that, do we really need to contribute to that and I think the other point that Kitty Saro made that might have been muffled in the in the sound difficulty was um, them shifting to more plant-based diets yeah. as a very a profound contribution, as one of the leading causes of climate destabilization and eco-destruction. And also besides what it does for us and what it does for us so we can survive on the planet, it's just decolonizing our mind from this idea that we have the right to control animals or as in the native uh, expression is our relatives you know these are our relatives we just can perceive them as animals and see them as low on the hierarchy and so those kinds of mindsets that we don't have the right to do that really now that we're so aware of what it involves in these huge agro farms so this sort of awareness where everything that we're connected with as you say the car that you're driving the flights we take i mean we're all contributing to this economy through the use of oil, and it can't be avoided. But I think the heightening of awareness begins to change our engagement and our activity, is what mindfulness does. And you find yourself one day and you say, I can't do that like that anymore, let me find another way. And I think this. it's so it's, it's, it's a gradual thing, but it's, it needs to happen faster. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it is, actually. It's picking you know, up these, steam. It's picking up speeds, and you see these tipping points happening, you yeah. know, like, uh, Chain, ma- major um, fast-food chains beginning to introduce vegan options into the hamburgers and so on, and, and these sort of um, Beyond Meat organizations and these investments in, in looking at dietary meat uh, replacements and so on. So.
0: Things can change faster than people think. The Berlin Wall fell quite abruptly and the Soviet Union collapsed quite abruptly, but. You know, when we think of tipping points or well, there's negative tipping points, of course, in terms of methane being released from the Arctic, but ordinary tipping points like in or phase transitions, they're sometimes called in, in physics, where like you have water at 99 degrees centigrade and nothing much seems to be happening, one more degree and it's turning to steam and boiling. So there could be phase transitions like that in society as well, that we might be closer to than we realize.
2: It's a lot unpredictable. There's a lot of wild cards out there. Yeah, there and are. We don't know which way they'll tip. Definitely, yeah. including in the political realm. Yep. You know, you could tip into fascism. <laughs>
0: yeah. Or tip into something a lot more enlightened. Hopefully. Uh, yeah. I want to t- totally shift gears and um, go back to your typhoid fever, and you're also talking about Mandela in jail for 27 years. The fellow I interviewed uh, from South Africa recently, John Lockley talks about something called Thwaza or something in the Sangoma tradition, which is this sickness that people often get when they are marked to become a Sangoma, a spiritual leader in that tradition. It's like, kind of nature puts them through the ringer in terms of something they've got to work out. And there are stories in Christian tradition like that too, Saint Francis got very sick before undergoing the transition he did, and um, there are many other examples. So, is there something like that in the Buddhist tradition that's Absolutely. commonly known?
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and mm-hmm. it—you know—it wasn't what my sense of self wanted, my aspirations. Right. But as I told you, I was quite a willful person, used to being able just to shift things through force of will. But yeah. then when I when I hit typhoid fever after six months of diarrhea and then got bit by a centipede, then was urinating uh, blood and. Uh, got uh, weaker, but I was still pushing, pushing, but then the typhoid fever uh, knocked me down and then my whole body was was different for years. It ulcerates all your insides and was really, really exhausted and had to pretty much lie down for mm. three years uh, and was quite ill for ten. But there's a principle in, in Buddhism called uh, Devadutta, which is called Heavenly Messenger, mm. and that in the Buddha's own life, it was these encountering things that his first reaction was to turn away from and recoil because he didn't want to really look at and be with old age sickness and death. But uh, he caught himself and thought, what what am I, Uh, he he talked like, well, the vanity uh, left me when I realized, you know, but, but this body has the nature to age and sicken and die, so what am I, what am I reacting to? And how it's a heavenly messenger at the time, I I didn't know, but when I couldn't shift it, you know, I could have just uh, quit and blamed everybody, but when uh, my teachers and the Buddha talks about, no, there's something important here, surrender to this, receive a teaching here, and then this first noble truth, this ennobling truth of of, of Dukkha. It's it's not a static thing. Mm -hmm. The Buddha said, when there is that which is hard to bear, like sickness, he didn't say it needs to be conquered. He said it needs to be opened to, and then when one opens to it, just on the first level, one deepens one's capacity to be real, to be realistic. And in opening to it, there's then a possibility of seeing how we keep feeding it and perpetuating it. So this insight into how suffering is continued by wanting things to be different. And that that somehow when there is that opening to that and in moments of, of questioning, what happens if I just let something be? What if I, if I'm able, let go of just clinging to the idea of how it should be? and clinging to this aversion, this shouldn't be this pain. it's not fair, done all this work, I've come all this way. If we somehow let them be, and then those moods just become what they are, those feelings, we touch into this sacred ground, this ever-present background awareness within which all manifests and dissolves. And that is a profound, shifting of lineage, We what we used to think was me, my worries, my poor sickness, we realize that's true, but only as ephemeral sensations, we drop into this deeper abiding. So that's, and, and, and this this truth of the rebirth in a sense, not being reborn out in, in another body, but uh, renewal is the same, principle in the cross and in in resurrection, you know, by opening to the suffering, there's a possibility of the of, of deep transformation, similarly in this noble truth of suffering and in my case, this opening to a sickness, it's later became really important because when I couldn't do any of the monastic routines, I had to lie down all that time and the internal bleeding, and I had a lot of chronic inflammation and was very weak, but the... So I, I lying down meditation is a wonderful thing on each out-breath. I would uh, let go, trying to get anywhere, and just feel the support of the ground. And, and when when similarly, when one softens volition of trying to change things, one can recognize that part of being itself, which just is, yeah. and uh, so I had a chance really to, to deepen in that, which I'm grateful that the illness gave me an opportunity.
0: Yeah, I, I know a fellow who wrote a book called Blessed by a Brain Tumor,
1: <laughs> uh. he
0: felt he learned a lot from it. Here's a couple sentences from your book which pertain to this, he said, the Buddha realized that actually life is unfolding perfectly according to its own natural laws. At its core, it is peaceful and luminous. Habitually wanting this moment to be other than it is, however, causes distress, and we lose sight of our true nature. And then a little bit later on, suffering is something that is generated from the mind's inability to accept reality." Yeah, Kind of sounds like Byron Katie, if you're familiar with her.
2: That's the Four Noble Truths at the heart of the Buddha's teaching. So profound, sometimes it's like, oh yeah, I've got that, what's the real profound stuff? But to realize that a lot of the dukkha, the suffering that is... You know, there's pain and difficulty that comes to us, uh, but what we do with it is uh, the reactivity around that is generated from the mind itself, and that we can solve. You know? So once we get that peace as a practice and then feel the fruit of that, it's a direct doorway into the unconditioned, into the unborn and the unoriginated. So that nexus of dukkha being a gateway is a very, is a very different relationship to that experience, then dukkha is something we distract ourselves from and, and, you know, we go shopping, we we have our addictive tendencies, so it's a very profound learning and it's almost a learning that can only come about sometimes when we're stuck and we can make no other move than to let go, which is what a monastic life will do. do. It will push you in the corner or, you know, a deadly sickness. And then, of course, when that letting go, then all sorts of uh, mysterious unfoldings and shifts of consciousness start to happen. And ironically, the letting go sometimes makes a healing much more possible Mm
1: -hmm. because one's uh, limited sense of how it should be and all that pushing and pulling and contraction really messes up our subtle energy channels because we're. We think we're separate, but you know, just even on the level of breath, we realize this ocean of vitality that we can breathe in and breathe what we breathe in. The trees breathe out, and what we breathe out, the trees breathe in. And that's just breath. Now, not even to mention these subtle connections to consciousness. We're we're hooked up to this whole undivided uh, mystery. And when when one is wrestling with the will, doing all this stuff that constricts the channels that feed us. And when my teacher, my Western teacher, who remembered me when I was, I used to teach the monks yoga, I used to, I was so active, and so he wanted me to get well. And one one day when he came up to my room and I was in this attic for a long time or out of the way of the monastery was a bit of a building site. We were repairing this old Victorian house. Uh, the abbot said, um, "Kitty, sorry, I realize I've been putting all this pressure on you to get well because we wanted to back to how you used to be." And he said, "I give you permission to die." <laughs> and uh, he says, now we want you to die." And the the relief, the, uh, the the relief of joy, and in in more profoundly surrendering to a situation sometimes the very mysterious energy that can help transform that then is allowed to flow, and I didn't die, and little by little, my energy returned. And so I think these, even though we're so convinced it shouldn't be this way, and sometimes we feel guilty as an activist, oh, does it mean I just don't care if I'm letting go for a moment of this horror at what people are doing or what has happened? I think we, we should trust To That in those moments of uh, softening and letting go, we're touching down into a deeper reservoir that can also refresh a situation. And so I would really encourage activists, and and we do that just to survive, to learn to modulate being on the front lines to pausing and feeling into the perfection of a moment even when it's painful. Sure.
0: Well as you know, I mean we'd die within seconds if we had to consciously, willfully Orchestrate and control all the functions in our body. I mean, we, we, we'd, be, we'd just be gone in a moment. But there are more functions, such as behavior and thought, and and all kinds of things, that actually can also be put in the lap of God, as it were, and managed much more skillfully than our puny intelligence can manage, if we're willing to let go. And well, there's the, there's the bumper sticker, you know, let go and let God.
1: Ah, <laughs> oh,
2: that's, that's
0: nice. Yeah. Um, An interesting question came in from uh, Faisal Al-Sarhi, from Lebanon, who says, "...around two months ago I participated in a Vipassana retreat as taught by Escoenka. I would say that that was a very dry patriarchal approach. I did not resonate with it at all. And it is said that the Theravada tradition has rarely produced any realized being in the last thousand years, unlike Mahayana tradition, which is rich and layered. Um, Can you comment on this?" And before you do, I just want to read um, a quote from Tani Sara's book. She said, um, When monasticism and spiritual practice are overly shaped by a warrior strategy, mostly focused on overcoming the pull of the world, they tend to offer only a partial ripening, one that eventually undermines a fuller and more integrated awakening. The times we are now in invite a shift from a transcendent metaphor, which holds us to a lonely road where we throw away the world like an old rag, to an integrative vision, where awakening is collective and radiates into all spheres of life with a blessed, healing touch. For this, the powerful, dedicated and loyal warrior is invited to enter the path of love."
2: Wow, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you for the question. I, I also, we both began our journeys with the Vipassana style, it's called Vipassana, as taught by Goenkaji. And I moved on from that, partly because I, I did find it became, a, it became rigid. I think in, inwardly and outwardly for me, not for everyone else, a very powerful technique. It was originally taught by Lady Sayador as a Burmese forest master, um, that methodology of taking attention through the body, but it was taught as a healing method, actually physical healing method. And that's, if you remember the story of Goenka, he went to get healing for his migraines. So it has a it is a very powerful method, but it's also it's not very integrated at all, I would say. You know, that's the problem I found that you leave the meditation retreat, there's no integration. So the way of awakening, we're not really here to just become a good meditator or a good Buddhist. We're here to awaken. And these are methods, these are pathways, and there's many, many pathways offered. Through the Mahayana, through the Theravada, I think it's hard to... Like when Ajahn Chah was asked, you know, are you enlightened, are you awakened? And he said, well, it actually takes one to know one. He, he would never speculate on that. I would refute the idea that there's no awakened Theravada masters. I think we've seen some very contemporary ones in the forest school and in, in also many schools many different ways. You know, it depends how we define that too, you know, and that's a whole discussion. How but, we
0: define awakened, you mean?
2: Yeah, or how yeah, we yeah. define enlightenment, enlightened yeah. masters, and so on. I you know, want to touch that on that it. as we go along. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so in my journey, I found it wasn't only really Buddhist meditation, which, which is core Buddhist teaching, but also doing psychotherapeutic work, doing body work, doing somatic healing work, doing shamanic work, you know, diff- different kinds of work to supplement so that there's more integrated and fullness of embodied awakening. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a sort of transcendent that abdicates from the emotional plane, from the embodied plane, from the relational field. So my point in the book was that actually a lot of Theravada, and you find it very strongly in the Mahayana too, is the Buddhist metaphor is very much steeped in the warrior mode, the tremendous effort it takes for awakening. But when you find a Buddha's life, he used that, you know, in the archetypal journey of his life when he was trying to crush the body, not breathe, refuse to eat food, and he got to the point of near death. And then appears the, the young compassionate maiden, Sujata, who comes with milk rice. And offers him nourishment and at that point he realizes he needs nourishment but it's a really a metaphor for him opening to the depth feminine to the world of form and realizing that the way of awakening isn't crushing form in the material realm it's actually opening to it and realizing reality is suffused through the world of form not it's not pulled out of that world of form so then he was able through that path um, through that way of opening to to then realize his full awakening. And so I call it the shift from the warrior mode, as you read, to the, the lover archetype, which is a, a necessary part of recoming coming into the marketplace, uh, not just trying to get out of Samsara, but re entering the marketplace with this recognition that the, the completion of the journey is to be with love, you know, love within our embodied experience, within our relational experience, and that's a whole other piece of work and, and concentration.
0: Yeah, it kind of um, relates to this theme that we keep coming back to, which is surrendering to divine intelligence, if you want to call it that, rather than sort of trying to pound away th- through individual will, which in a sense can, can a, a kind of accentuate and reify the ego, it would seem to me.
1: And it's not, I think, one or the other, to me, as we develop maturity and agility and, and tuning in our practice, uh, you know, it's not a question of surrender or will or warrior or love. Mm-hmm. It's learning, you know, that capacity to persevere and to focus and to inquire, to really look into a situation is very important. But if that's the only, uh, you know, gear that we know, we can sometimes burn out. And, you know, that famous uh, saying of Nisargadatta, the great uh, non dual sage. You know, he said, uh, "Wisdom says I'm nothing. Compassion says I'm everything. And between these two banks, the life of the awakened one flows." Yeah. I think we can learn how to when to to go narrow, when to look into and see the nature, but then also how to keep softening, relaxing, surrendering, welcoming, and checking again how it all comes together, how it gets, how it heals, in that. That dance between the, the two, I think is, is as our, you know, we're still learning, but I, I think we get more adept at how to intuitively know what is appropriate. Sometimes it's really incredible to be able to persevere in emergency and have that mm. energy. But then, you know, if that's all we know, that can be so insensitive sometimes. Sometimes yeah. we just need to be able to soften and welcome. And finally, to answer that question, or The the Vipassana expression of those Goenka retreats is quite a narrow picture of all of Theravada practice. There's also a lot of devotion in certainly some of the, like in our monastery of Ajahn Chah where you do lots of chanting and bowing, where you're also regularly practicing surrendering and melting into that central place where everything merges.
0: I was just going to say on this point that you were just making about softening and surrendering. And you're saying, it's, it's not like you have to be able to, not only that you have to be able to do both, but you have to be able to do both simultaneously. Here's a nice quote from your, one of your books, When we authentically align with that deeper prompting, there was a response. This is a living and responsive universe. Signs will come, books or people, or an event we feel drawn to attend. The important thing, especially with the lover energy, is to stay open, inwardly soft and receptive. And I think you can do that in the midst of a very determined, dynamic,
3: purposeful
0: mm. type of activity.
3: Mm.
0: Because if you don't do that, then that activity can become brutish, you know? You can just become, become sort of insensitive, as you were saying, and kind of forge ahead in, in a wrong direction. But if you can sort of be applying yourself at the same time, sensitive to feedback from the universe, to indicators that, well, maybe you better go a little bit this way, then it can be more successful. Exactly.
2: Mm-hmm. My yeah. partner. Beautiful
0: let's keep talking about this theme this is good yeah, well here's a point well, let's comment on this one and then I'll go to the next one um, you say when we when we open to the eros energy of life which I think is what we're talking about here the divine feminine the softer quality what is initially intoxicating has then to be matured into a global and less personally focused compassion what do you mean by that
2: yes. It was written in a context of a whole piece, and I yeah. can't remember the whole piece that it was written in. But um, the Eros energies to do with our life force, our sexuality, our creativity, the imaginative, the intuitive, and often that doesn't get held or named very well in the in the Buddhist lexicon of warrior type approaches. Yeah. And I would connect that with the depth feminine, um, and they and the uh, the sort of deeply embodied in life, instead of that sense of being a bit afraid of life. You sometimes get that feeling that in Buddhist practice, it's a bit like, don't tempt me with anything. (laughs) (laughs) And I think because it is close to sexuality, and that's uh, because Buddhism has come through monastic celibate traditions for centuries, that is a a, a very kind of uncomplex area. It's not a very... And because of our own sexual... Conditioning around our own sexuality in our contemporary society, with some judeo Christianity was profound shaming. I was just reading an article, having, you know, my family coming from Ireland, and I was just reading an article about the um, legacy of pregnancies outside of marriages in that culture, and the and the terrible shaming and death that happened of, of children born out of wedlock. Yeah, and, there was a great movie
0: about that a couple of years ago. I don't know if you saw it. I forget the what Madeline it
2: was. Sisters, which is yeah. chilling, and so. You know we have these very um, neurotic and distorted relationships or the selling of sex out there to sell a product you know, or women's bodies or you know this so all of this has led to this very very dis- this distorted um, relationship to this fundamental eros energy which is actually needed for our life force and it's needed for us to feel embodied and part of the you know, part of this web of life, part of the, the, the fecundity of the earth. And so we're kind of we morphed into this abstraction. We we live as a sort of abstracted species in realms of technology and the and the rational and divorced again from that energy. So you know, at first when we when we feel that it's often when we feel in love you know, we fall in love and then we feel we, we, we sexually aroused or, you know, that whole love, sex, uh, intimacy, nexus. You know, that's very personal and it's about me and the other. But when I was talking about it maturing, is that we start with that. But in the spiritual practice, and you know, in the, in the healthy monastic practice, the ideal is that that energy is transmuted and transformed and brought into the heart center. And then it becomes available, and you see like a Dalai Lama emerge, or you see like teacher Ajahn Chah, where that love energy was available for everyone regardless. I see. And then it becomes a huge umbrella or a huge tree, as Ajahn Chah described himself as a huge tree, which all sorts of birds can sit in, or, you know, a huge umbrella that shakes and helps people like a Mandela, so that you see the merging of the warrior-king-lover archetype. That completely is able to transmute that eros love energy for the welfare of, as you know, the Bodhicitta, Bodhisattva for the welfare of the whole.
0: Which kind of, I mean, in a way, Mandela was a monk since he lived in prison for 27 years. I guess he was. He didn't stay with his wife very long after he left, and then of course the you know Ajahn Chah and, and others and and the Dalai Lama were monks. But what you're saying is that you know, the energy that they might, or correct me if you're not saying this, that the energy they might have expended or used in a more personal relationship or even a sexual relationship was somehow sublimated or transmuted, to use the u- word you just used, and ended up causing their hearts to blossom and into a much more universal, all-embracing um, yeah. way of yeah, functioning it means- than, than it might have been had they just been family men.
2: Yeah, but I don't want to denigrate family people that you know also working on this path and able to use the family as a container, as their monastery, as their right. means of of developing that energy. Because then we can get into this. You know, but it, but it is the case that that's a journey. I think whatever container we're in, whether we're family, monastery, or otherwise, that's a necessary journey that we that we make in awakening that we start to shift out of our personal fixations and are able to then open out as we mature into this uh, more collective. And to start uh,
1: reflecting whatever our circumstance, whether in a monastery or in a uh, sexual relationship or not, that we can start to inquire into this energy that uh, where we see beauty, where we feel like we want intimacy, but start to recollect the kinship that we have with all beings that we all share this old age and sickness and death and disappointment and hope and especially as we start to contemplate and realize this sense of separation is rooted in the way that we think and how we relate to our thoughts And, and we start to touch into that abiding where Everyone is there appearing in our mind keeps dissolving back into this silent, ever-present listening. Then we can start to touch into and practice and cultivate a, an intimacy, a well-wishing that is universal. It doesn't deny the special relationships that we have, but it doesn't limit our concern, our compassion, our sense of closeness just to those beings. And so, you know, all the great religious and spiritual traditions have encouraged this purification of love to a more uh, universal blessing quality. Good point.
0: My wife and I also lived in, uh, in a monastic lifestyle for 15 years prior to getting married. And, uh, mm-hmm. and as you can probably uh, attest, very often people living in those circumstances are among the most sort of self centered and idiosyncratic <laughs> people you 're likely to meet i mean it 's all about me 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 and you know my enlightenment and it's my, yeah, my right. routine and my you know comfort and my quietness and all this stuff and when you actually enter into a relationship with another person you have to you have to start thinking about the other person or it 's not going to work and if you have kids then you 're exp- expanding your territory exactly. even further and then very and then it might expand to the community and then maybe exactly. to the nation maybe to the world so so being in the world is not necessarily um, limiting in terms of one's. In fact, it may be conducive to a more universal um, perspective.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Monastics are an eccentric bunch. I agree with yeah, that.
0: Yeah. You can. I've even. I've seen it in various contexts. I mean, visiting a Christian monastery one time, that the organization I was working for was thinking of buying. There's some really kooky characters hanging around there. That. Maybe they didn't make it very well in society and that's why they ended up there. I think that may be part of it. But also I think the lifestyle can make you even more kooky because it doesn't <laughs> necessarily give you the feedback you need, which you might get in a more you know, and if you start like not getting along with somebody, you can always gravitate to somebody else. But if you're, if you're married or in a, in a relationship that you're, you're just in day and night, then you really kind of have to work out your stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an imperfect container. What, it, what, it, what I appreciate about it is it enabled depth. Yeah. They didn't actually have a sometimes sophistication in regards to the relational field or, or, psych, or psycho, understanding of psychology yeah.
0: um,
2: and psycho-spiritual bypassing in that territory. So,
0: It's also interesting to consider how um, so many of the leaders or gurus who very often coming from the East kind of fall flat in their faces after a while in the West because they just haven't had the the social interaction experience in their spiritual upbringing. That, they kind of needed to have in order to function in Western society.
2: Yeah, that's a big subject, but definitely that. Yeah, definitely that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you know, I think the patriarchal structures that um, the transmission has happened that through, which the transmission has happened of of the of the Dharma of awakening modalities, also contributes to. Uh, a difficulty around um, a more natural organic process of feedback and checking and maybe those very same gurus in their own home systems had more containment and feedback processes that weren't available in the west or the way westerners the lack of boundaries and the way westerners misunderstood perhaps some of the their, their you know, their cultural, the way they would have been held in a cultural context. yeah. But um, also this sense of the divine right of the guru is something that we don't understand very well and has become very unhealthy and distorting and, and abusive. So there's a lot of fallout, a lot of learning around all of this in yeah. the last uh, few decades.
0: Yeah, I mean, the divine right of gurus works about as well as the divine right of kings. I mean, you really have to earn it, and um, and very often they haven't, and yet they claim it and uh, people follow them blindly thinking, well, I don't understand this behavior, but this guy is supposed to be enlightened, so I guess I'm just going to go along with it. Exactly. And then the whole thing just gets more and more off the deep end.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, in the Buddha, the original structure, the Karma Vinaya, the Karma Sangha, that which um, Sangha Karma, that which guides the development of community, there was always, um, within that, the, the system of Korpavarana, invitation for feedback which is also a ceremony that you're supposed to go through collectively every year, but it means that whoever you are, whether you're an abbot, whether you're the head of the monastery, whether you're the newest member, that you open yourself for feedback. And I think that's a system of checks and balances and, and health, if it's very authentic, but it calls, it, tends become, it tends to become rather stylized and formalized, and so the actual real ability to do that in a, in a process-oriented way is not always that available but I think that's what helps keeps those systems healthy. And I, I
1: really feel that I hope those systems remain because to me the option in a society of a, of a, a place where one can lead a celibate renunciate life and, and focus uh, with, with other kindred spirits is, is very important. But I would like to, you know, also, the, the Buddha talked about a fourfold sangha and the importance of not only ordained men and women, but also laymen and lay women, you know, and how the two can support one another. So I would hate to see those uh, uh, deep uh, monastic contemplative opportunities disappear. Certainly they had a huge blessing on our life, but I, I think we... We, uh, you know, it is not the only the, the only way. And well, however we're practicing, there can be shadows. And just as Dinosaur said, the Buddha realized that and encouraged us to keep uh, being aware that we might have blind spots. That's why he encouraged us to not be the kind of people that you can't give feedback to, but to be the kind of person who is interested in how's this impacting you. Is there something I need to uh, hear back from you?
0: Yeah. A week ago today, I gave a talk at the Science and Nonduality Conference about um, the ethics of enlightenment, not that I'm supposed to be some kind of expert on this, but I just put together a lot of thoughts and conferred with a bunch of friends and gave this talk which I'll be posting on BatGap. But part of the talk was a quote that I read from the Dalai Lama where he talks about um, you know, if a teacher is behaving inappropriately, you really need to call him on it, mm-hmm. and if he doesn't respond. Then publish it in the newspaper. Include his name. You know, I mean, it, it, we shouldn't just let sweep this stuff under the rug and hope that things are going to be okay.
2: I think the difficulty with that advice. I think it's a very, very good advice. But a lot of people that, that are sometimes abused feel are, are quite disempowered, oh, yeah. and there can be fear sure. um, and and very real concerns about you know if you've been in a community for a few decades mm-hmm. and you've got no other livelihood they're often not in a very powerful position to do that, so really, yes, that should happen, but really it should be the leaders of the community that should also uh, hold each other accountable, Yeah, because they have the power, they hold the power.
0: Something like that's happening in Hollywood now, with this whole Harvey Weinstein scandal, you know, and all these actresses and women who had been abused by him are speaking out finally, and they had been afraid to do so for fear of losing their jobs because he was so powerful in Hollywood. But now Hollywood itself, the upper echelon is saying, this is the end of an era, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. So it seems like on several different fronts like that, there's a transparency Mm -hmm. that's suddenly emerging and a a sort of a a dissatisfaction with um, the status quo or this kind of old Mm -hmm. hanky-panky going on any longer.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that if, you, if you've if you spent millennia objectifying, you know, the guy, one of my friends was we were talking about this the other day That um, from South Africa, Peter Woods, who's a former uh, minister, talking about how, you know, the whole system produces the guy at the top. He is the, he's the powerful guy and you have in the system of the objectification of women then it's your right, like the, like the king again, it's your right to pick and choose and you know you get away with this behavior. But it's just so it, it is the characters that display the behavior, but it's a systemic level that we also need to look at. And I, I think the Me Too campaign that went out and went viral in response to Weinstein yeah. was very um, powerful because it really it broke the silence. You know, the, the thing yeah. of the, the, those that feel victimized breaking the silence and then women or peoples that have been abused in various spheres of society, whether through gender or what other reason that they're in a marginal, disempowered position to break the silence collectively, so that it reveals and opens the shadow. And then as you say, this sort of tipping, another tipping point, like this toxic behaviour, is no longer acceptable. Yeah. It's not something that we're going to withstand.
0: And these, really, these things really are breakthroughs. I mean, I think progress is being made and we're, we're not just going to, you know, once a certain norm has been established, like gay marriage, for instance, um, it's not going to be made illegal again because, you know, something has been established. And say this whole thing about uh, abusing women and so on, a lot of this stuff, it's the time for things to come to light. I guess that's what I want to say. That A lot of stuff that's been hidden is coming to light now. And huge that, amounts. Yeah, huge that's amounts. very... Um, inspiring or, or
3: you know. It has to. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think that's part of our evolutionary crunch at the moment is that we're being faced with the systemic levels of these profoundly dysfunctional systems. And I think something that helps us in the, um,
1: which is a warning, you know, the, the Buddha gave an image, he said, if you're riding on the back of a donkey and fall off, no big deal, you just dust yourself off it might be a little more painful, but he said if you're riding on the back of an elephant and you fall off, you can break your back. Right. He's saying that when you're in this position of leadership, mm. you, you know, carrying a banner of uh, a monk, a non, a guru, a, a leader of, of something, the megaphone of your power increases the karma so much that it's just really important to remember that, you know, that you know what you do that is good can be amplified but what you do that is unwholesome rooted in selfishness and, and aversion or, or just the insensitive greed and lust is is amplified exponentially yeah. and so our, our teacher Ajahn Chah kept uh, saying, he told us all, we're all going to be teachers, he said, it'll happen, he said, but don't be the kind of teacher that gets so puffed up you can't get through the door. <laughs> he said, fundamentally you're a practitioner. Mm. If it's time for some sharing to happen, or teaching, or leadership, okay, one does that, but that's not who one is, that's not one's identity, one's prime identity is this humble taking refuge again and again with this inner place of, of listening and awareness, and I found that advice uh, really is helping me to try to stay sane.
0: Um, I say, oh always it says it's always good to have the attitude of a beginner. Yeah, um. good. And just what you were saying there, Kitasaro, I mean, there's so many examples of these sort of larger-than-life, out-of-control characters, who are just sort of, like, like you say, the bigger they are, the harder they fall or something. But I remember, uh, there's some quote from, who is it? it, Padmasambhava, I believe. He said, even though my awareness is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour.
3: Oh, beautiful. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it's almost like the more vast your awareness becomes, the more impeccable you mm-hmm. you you need to be. Um, Perfect. Or mm-hmm. one way of putting it is, if if a judge commits the same ca- crime as a uneducated you know man, perhaps his punishment will be greater because he really should know better, he knows the law. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: The more responsibility. The more aware you become, definitely. Yeah. All right, interesting point.
0: Keep in mind as we go along that if I'm not asking some question and you have something in mind you want to talk mm-hmm. about that's different than what we're talking about, just let me know. But here's something, I just took all these notes out, I don't know whose book is whose at this point, but <laughs> someone said, one of you said, for the most part the practice of Buddhist meditation introduced into Western culture from the late 1960s went hand in hand with spiritual bypassing. And I wouldn't necessarily just pin it on Buddhist meditation. I think maybe the same was true of um, meditations coming out of Hindu tradition. traditions. Is that because of what we've been talking about, you think, the patriarchal emphasis, or is there some other reason for that, or what?
2: I think it's quite complex why we want to bypass the actual journey of awakening and the messy side of it. I think we, we often get into these, these systems commit at very deep levels. We talked about you being a monastic, we, we were a monastic, or people going into a spiritual path, and then it's very easy to start to generate an idealised persona, and an idealised, an ideation of what enlightenment and spirituality is, which is completely problematic. You know, we can land up being a rather aloof, judgmental person um, that is feels above everyone, and really not looking at our own inner issues, or our own shadows, our own wounds, you know, we, we prefer not to go there. Um, and so what can actually happen is as, those, as we split away from very fundamental wounding and we're not really addressing that, deep areas of, you know, rage or unacceptable emotions, we, you know, rage, jealousy, pettiness, resentment, these aren't very nice energies to admit that we have it doesn't fit our spiritual persona but the danger in that is that one that we repress them and it can actually affect the body in very negative ways because that energy is still there or we project them onto the self and we get the affect of you know feeling depressed or feeling dislocated
3: or or then we
2: project them onto other people like why you 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 know you're the ones that are that are angry and petty, not me. <laughs> so that this, this, ty- this term. I think it was coined a little bit by John Wilwood's work, which is really worth reading. Think, yeah. The Psychology of Awakening is one of his primary books. Is um, is returning. You know, this is why I did a lot of in-depth therapeutic work. So I realised I bypassed quite a lot, and I realised that I had these sort of you can feel it in your in your energy body. You have these dislocations and um, splits within and then there's sort of symptoms of that. So going through um, a very deep um, awareness space, psychotherapeutic process uh, enabled me um, and it continues to enable me to get in touch with, you know, very early what we call primary patterning, very early patterning when the developmental phases of your life, when a lot of these very deep we might categorize as negative energies or the bad sense of self is developed through painful experience and it gets kind of locked into your energy body and then it gets layers over through all sorts of defenses which dislocates us and doesn't allow the fullness of our energy to operate so actually returning into and opening into primary rage for example, or primary fear, these kinds of energies you know, in a therapeutic relationship with a safely-held, uh, compassionate dynamic enables a sort of release and uh, opening and an understanding and the integration and the transformation of those energies so that the awakening becomes more integrated emotionally and more embodied. And then there is isn't these side effects and these splits that start to happen where you can actually find, I think it le- leads into this very discussion we have just had, you know, very awakened gurus on one level that can really talk the talk, but then another level they land up abusing people, or they yeah. land up in fits of rage and call it sort of crazy wisdom, when right. actually they're just enraged, and they've yeah. never dealt with the fact that perhaps they have a lot of anger, you know, that... that um, all of us don't start off as Buddhist gurus, we start off as young babies and develop these very deeply learned emotional experiences that can, it doesn't necessarily even come with abusive or bad parenting, even very small things and like not being fed on time and feeling abandoned and feeling Um, lost and you know these these emotional learnings are very deep and we compensate 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 so I like the term um, Just to to wrap this up. It's a big subject But I like the way Ajahn Chah spoke about awakening so it's not we're here to catapult ourselves into an ideal Don't be a Buddha. Don't be a Bodhisattva. If you've got to be anything be an earthworm Mm Because at least they go down through the mud (laughs) so rather than a sort of up-and-out kind of metaphor which fits this more disembodied patriarchal religious metaphor that's been going on for millennia, like a down and through the material of our life. Um, and it gets kind of muddy and messy, but it's more authentic, and then it allows us to really be more integrated and more whole.
0: Yeah, a lot of people coming around to that perspective, also in the you know, Vedanta non-dual world, because the other thing didn't work that well. Well, we
2: we learn it in the end. (laughs)
0: Yeah, by necessity, they're coming around to that perspective. Here's a nice sentence from your book, you said, one of the functions of an emotion such as sadness is to keep our heart tender and open. It helps us feel what we need to feel to stay humane. And um, my friend Michael Rodriguez recently wrote an article called The Wisdom of Heartbreak. It's just sort of a commentary on what you were just saying. Do you think that um, spiritual practice... At least in, as you have known it, can actually help a person keep things bottled up, even Definitely. yeah even though they're trying to sort of open up to something deeper and vaster, it actually sort of keeps them numbed in certain ways.
2: I think the early transmission of these enlightenment processes that came from Asia, I don't think there was a lot of psychological sophistication in terms of the individuated ego-self. There was a lot, there's a very brilliant psychology of Buddhism, but in terms of the particularity of the developmental processes that you find really unfolded very well in in, um, developmental uh, therapeutic psychologists. I think that to marry in some of that wisdom is very, very helpful, both as wisdom, but also as practice. And
1: I'd like to add I think it really helps to have a good teacher yeah. who is aware of this uh, tendency, because if you're really aspiring to calm and tranquility and insight, mm-hmm. and even the name of uh, hindrance for desire and aversion, you, you can concretize those emotions as bad things that you you need to get rid of. Our teacher Ajahn Chah said, "Don't be in a hurry mm-hmm. to get rid of these things." He said, "They will be your teachers and your sharpening stones." Mm-hmm. So this. Uh, active encouragement to also welcome from time to time these energies fully, to feel them, to relax with them, to to get to know them. And as he said, read the book of your heart is the most important. Rather than we have all these ideas about what the stages should look like and then we try to project ourselves into some advanced stage and we're not reading the moment to moment moods and tendencies which are really revealing how it is right now. So I think a good teacher can help us a lot, avoid some of those problems. And I think that's why spiritual friendship or, uh, is vital that to, to help us see our blind spots. Sometimes we get stuck and it really takes uh, a trustworthy person sometimes to help us see, hey man, what are you doing? You're just bottling it all up and laying it on Maybe me or them. And sometimes uh, that's why congregation or church or sangha or kindred spirits is considered so important, at least in the Buddhist path, to, yeah. um, to help us stay on track.
0: Yeah, um, I guess that if we wanted to put into a phrase everything we've been talking about here, um, or a lot of what we've been talking about here, it would be sacred feminine which is kind of a popular phrase these days, everybody's talking about it. And here's a quote from your book, he said, "...it is also my understanding that it was not possible for the Buddha or anyone else to open into enlightenment without going through the door of the sacred feminine." So, if we take that literally, the Buddha or anyone else, it it almost sounds like anybody who hasn't done that, anybody who's still on the sort of hyper-masculine warrior path, so to speak, by definition couldn't be enlightened yet, and they're going to have to soften and go through the the door of the sacred feminine, in order to be enlightened. Would you agree with that?
2: I don't that know. Too, too that might be a bit too. Um... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, to me. Too grandiose. Willpower, <laughs> volition.
1: When you're directing the attention to an object, to, to you, to to this situation, then then what appears in one's vision, whether it's a sensation, whether it's the cosmos, uh, whether it's a state of peace. Is going to be something that is by nature shifting, transmuting, and changing, mm-hmm. and and if if that, when when we only know willpower, that's the part that can claim, and then what we take to be me and mine keeps changing, so we create birth and death. Mm-hmm. So that energy is useful for persistence and investigation, but the Buddha said, you know, absolutely, without the word he used is patimissagga which means without giving it back, without that surrender and softening, then we're only with that which is generated through volition, without that, and a a phrase for it is the sacred feminine, the dying into and surrendering to the ultimate womb, the ultimate uh, receptacle, which is that ground, uh, ground of awareness. The Buddha said there's no freedom unless there's that. So the two really, I would agree, the name of it we can uh, discuss and come up with different names, but there needs to be this this uh, training of volition and then relinquishing of it, yeah. training of it, relinquishing of it, which you can call the balance of male and female or yin and yang. Yeah, I
2: think in that way, that's beautifully put, and um, I think in that way we're looking at family not as a gender-based, obviously it, it, it is gender-based. <laughs> but also as an attribute within within all gender or non-gender, mm. those outside the gender binary, it's an attribute of, of that profound receptivity, and therefore I probably would say, although I don't know, I mean, I'm qualifying that, but I probably would say that that has to be a doorway to full awakening, as it was for the Buddha, in my reading of the archetypal journey yeah. that he undertook.
0: Yeah, my understanding of his story, which I most recently read in your book, and he he was volitional and willful and persevering, you know, to the nth degree. Like you know, outdid everybody. But then his his realization finally came only when he shifted into a more surrendered mode mm-hmm. and ex- accepted the food from the woman,
2: and you know, just kind of chilled a bit. <laughs> well, that's right, and also accepted life. Yeah, yeah. Accepted the body, and uh, and also he had the memory of the child. You know, right. so it was an intuitive, it's like the psyche, you know, through the moment you realize you, you can't do it, you know, and, and then you, di- you gave up, and then these things happened, and then this very innocent, young opening through his memory of being a child and having an opening, and that led him then on the right track to his night of awakening. And those are quite significant, a child and a woman, you know, um, being sort of doorways.
3: Yeah.
2: That softening and opening, t- turning, points, that, turning and, points, and
1: signposts reminding him, reminding him, you've gone to an extreme. Right. Mm-hmm. You're, you're heading in the wrong direction, and each of those turned him back to a place more of unification.
0: Yeah, I mean, his whole thing was the middle way, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So. And so, what you were just saying, Kiyotaro, a minute ago, is we don't want to be like surrendered to the point of no initiative or intention or you know mm-hmm. just sort of i think I'll just lie on the couch and wait for something to happen but on the other hand we you know if there's this sort of like straining forcing pushing driving kind of energy relentlessly then that too is imbalanced so there's there's some kind mm-hmm. of a both and paradoxical embrace of of both qualities that is most effective
1: absolutely well said that's how our practice Matures. It's ongoing. You know this uh, agility, this this tuning. I mean, there was a famous story of a someone was very inspired at the time of the Buddha by the Buddha's life. He was wealthy. He gave up his his inheritance to follow the Buddha, and he wanted to be awakened just like the Buddha. And he you know, walked meditation back and forth in and more effort, more effort, even to the point of his feet starting to bleed. Mm. And then he just started thinking, well, I don't think I can do it. Maybe in my, I can go back and be a lay person and do good deeds. And then in my next life, I can be enlightened. And the Buddha overheard his thoughts mm. from a distance and appeared before him and said, uh, the guy's name was Soni. He said, "Sona so you're thinking of giving up. And he said, yes, I. no one can try harder than this. I, I can't do it. I was thinking of making good karma in next life. And the Buddha said, didn't you used to play a musical instrument? And uh, someone said, yeah, he played a stringed instrument called a vina. They, oh, yeah. It seems to be something like a lute or something. Yeah. And the Buddha said, how, how was it when the string was too tight? Mm. And he said, did it make a nice sound? It, it screeched. Yeah. And he said, what about when it's too loose? He said, what if when you tune it just right? Mm. And so he was encouraging Sona and all of us to, that as our practice carries, deepens, we learn to tune this volition and softening and surrendering so that there's a balance that can can be attuned to each situation, yeah. we learn how to, through listening in. Yeah, it says you know, that in the,
0: in the Vedic tradition too, you know, the Gita balance of mind is called yoga and it says this, this yoga is not for him who eats too much or too little, who sleeps too much or too little, and you know, just sort of this moderation, advice. You know what, we're just about going to wrap it up, but I just one more thing I found interesting in your book which I hadn't known, others might like, wish to know, is that the Buddha himself didn't just sit under a tree with a beatific smile on his face. I mean, He was actually engaged in all kinds of things and all kinds of you know, negotiations to try to stop a war and all sorts of interactions with all kinds of people. He lived a very active, engaged life with, with people of, of all types in the world.
2: Yes, um, and I think that um, often doesn't get uh, the precedent he's, he set as someone that was talking with generals, with kings, with courtesans, with paupers, with lepers. You know, that this whole range that, that actually in, in affected a profound systemic change by ordaining uh, women, by dissolving uh, the hierarchy of caste in his, in his ordination structures. That these sorts of very, you know, by taking on animal sacrifices uh, and denouncing them, that he was he was pretty He's an activist, powerfully effective in the in the society. Yeah. Um, and the moment when he tried to stop um, a tribal war against uh, one tribe against his own peoples, mm-hmm. and then and then in the end he couldn't actually. He tried, he tried, he couldn't, and that was interesting too. That it wasn't that he was always successful. You know, and this great sadness that he had that his peoples got wiped out, you know, and um, Tabarastu. So, so you get this picture of a very human, uh, you know, an awakened person that's interacting in a very human, relational field. And those examples, you know, you get this idea of a stone Buddha, right. and then not really how he, he was a flesh and blood person interacting. Um, and how some of the teachings he did went well and some of them didn't go so well and some of the disciples didn't get the message and then they did crazy things and <laughs> how people were trying to kill him and how people were constantly putting him down and arguing with him. But how he, kept met, he met all of these circumstances. Yeah. So it's a much more fully-blooded blood, uh, uh, kind of sense of uh, an embodied um, person. Yeah,
0: more
3: realistic. And,
2: um, and this is a good template for us, I think, you know, not just enlightenment sitting on a, as a stone immovable person, but actually engaged, getting things wrong, failing, um, considering, readjusting, starting again, um, but kind of impacting as well, and looking at systemic levels, not just as personal awakening. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: yeah it's kind of what we were talking about earlier, you know, people not being an activist without the inner the attainment, and not just focusing on the inner attainment to the exclusion of outer engagement, and Buddha was an example of that, which I hadn't known before reading your book. Alright, well, I know you're in the middle of a retreat and you've got a very tight schedule, so we should probably wrap it up. Any final words you want to say before we do?
1: Well, I just would, uh, I feel grateful that uh, uh, you and your organization, uh, Buddha at the Gas Pump has given us this opportunity to meet and, and discuss. Uh, the spiritual path and its relationship to our own well-being and the well-being of the collective, and it, it really feels like an honor to us, and so thank you for this opportunity.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah. And incidentally, I'm sure you got it, but I, I've actually gotten a couple of emails over the years from people saying, how dare you put Buddha at the gas pump? Buddha is a god! You know, this is profane to say this, but the whole implication of the title is that in this day and age, people of all sorts are awakening and quite ordinary looking people, that you might be standing next to at a gas station could have some profound inner awakening. That's that's the I tell
1: you, who wouldn't have been upset is the Buddha wouldn't be upset. Yeah, he would have probably liked the title.
0: (laughs) He would have said, what's a gas pump?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Great.
2: I also want to add my thanks, uh, Rick, and your team, and thank you all very much and the patience of getting all of the technology set up. Yeah, Um,
0: thank you, because there's there's a lot involved sometimes in ironing all the technical difficulties and you're really really busy and you've been very patient in helping us work that out with you.
2: You're the guys doing it, but I I also uh, just, you know, we do live in these extraordinarily challenging times, it's very intense, and I just want to encourage us all, even though we don't know the outcomes, it's an incredible time to be around actually, but to encourage us all that's not a nothing to to really work at the shifts of consciousness that we've been talking about and pointing to that these have an incredible impact and can ripple out and and add contribute to these as well as the engagement and activism that we're doing contribute to these these tipping points that I think we will see more and more in the next 10 years we'll see an increase of intensity and destruction but we're also going to see an increase of these awakening, um, this new world that's trying to be born. And so, it's, you know, it's exciting, I'm glad we can share, you know, talking about these themes, and, you know, share this with your your, your platform and your, your followers, you know, thank you for that.
0: Yeah, one final line from your book, we should not underestimate the deep, psychotic, patriarchal dinosaur that in its belligerence and hatred would rather see a burnt and tortured earth than give up its quest for domination. But you know what happened to the dinosaurs. So uh, <laughs> I have a feeling that, like you say, there's going to be some destruction and some collapsing of cherished structures and institutions and, and ways of living that really have proven their their unworthiness to exist in uh, a more enlightened world and it should be an interesting time to live through. That's
2: right, yeah. correct, mm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well thanks, let me just make a couple of concluding remarks. So I've been, I've been speaking with Kitisaro and Tanisura, and uh, hopefully got those pronunciations right after all this. I will be linking to their website from their page on batgap.com and to their books and so on. So if you happen to be listening to this while you're driving in your car or something and you want to find them, just go to batgap.com and then you'll see their page. Or you can search for their page if you're listening to this for a year, a year from now, and um, you can follow the links there to get to their site, to their books, and so on. This is an ongoing series, and uh, if you'd like to be notified each time a new episode is posted, then subscribe on YouTube and or subscribe to the little email notification thing that I send out every time there's a new interview. You'll see a place for that on Batgap, and also I just mentioned audio podcast, this this exists as one of those as well as the videos. So. If you'd like to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or one of those platforms, there's a podcast link on thatgap.com, and a bunch of other stuff if you explore the menus. Um, so thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. And thank you, Kirisaro and Tanisara.
2: Thank you so much, Rick.
0: It's been a pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your w- retreat, and please apologize to the folks attending it if I've kept you over time. No,
2: not at all. Okay, great. great.
0: Thank you.